greetings and welcome to the program. Today we will continue our series through Revelations we've been doing. And in this episode we're going to cover chapter 6, which this is an incredibly exciting and important and highly disputed chapter in Revelation. This is the seven seals. Well, actually, we'll just see six of the seals here in uh, this chapter. And again, this is so important. I think I talked about it. I did talk about it in the last episode. Eschatology is important because uh, bad eschatology can truly harm people and kill people, actually. And I gave the example of Oh, uh, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas in 1990, early 90s. And how his whole cult was based upon, uh, fundamentally, a, a bad reading and bad interpretation of the scroll and the seven seals of Revelation. Uh, there's lots of other issues, of course, but that was a huge, huge part of his... Uh, Theology was this awful interpretation of these things. The futurist interpretation, which happened to be him and their generation, you know, it was all happening right in front of their eyes. And it seems that so many, you know, there's there's people in every generation of church history that have said, oh, this is our generation is the last generation. And so far, all of them have been wrong. (laughs) So. Uh, maybe that's because they're reading it wrong. And of course, that's what I would say. Uh, and we'll get into that here as we go. So, if you've been listening, you know my perspective here. And uh, that is that this is uh, not about some future event or future end of the world apocalypse. But it's about things that took place uh during the time of the original audience. As John has written in context, he has said, I'm writing to you about things that that will soon come to pass, things that will soon be. And um, if that wasn't true for his first century audience, then he was lying to them. And everything he said then would have been completely useless to them. And uh, thankfully, that's not true. He meant it. It happened, it was useful to them, and we can understand that and uh, draw uh, many applications to our lives today. But I would remind you as we get ready to jump into seeing what six of these seven seals are in chapter six, uh, let let me remind you that we saw in chapter five the scroll presented is a scroll with seven seals. So that's the context of these seals. They are the seven seals of the scroll, which if you didn't listen to the episode, go back and listen, but we talked about how the scroll was the... uh, It was the book or the scroll of the the new covenant or of the kingdom of God. And uh, these were the seven seals... Uh, sealing this document, uh, covenantal, new covenantal document. Um, David Chilton calls the scroll the treaty document of the new covenant. So, um, whatever we want to call the scroll, 
uh, you know, the Book of the Kingdom, uh, the Scroll of the New Covenant, the Treaty Document of the Covenant, uh, whatever other similar names, uh, it is clear based upon what unfolds or what we see with the seals in, in chapter 6 is that the opening of it, this scroll, results in the destruction of apostate Israel, uh, Jerusalem. And that happened in the first century, in 70 AD, is historically when it happened. Great tribulation came upon them, this judgment came upon them from about 66 to 70 AD, culminating when the temple was destroyed, not one stone left upon another, just as Jesus himself said would happen to that generation. It happened. And that's what, uh, that's what Revelation is primarily about. And that's what we see here in Revelation 6. Now, as we go through this, I'm going to go through this a seal at a time here. Um, I think it's the best way to understand these things. Um, and it, so if, you've, if, you've, if you're listening and you're disagreeing with what I've said so far, what I've asserted about these being first century judgments that happened, uh, please, uh, if you would be so kind, stick with me here through this uh, to see to see where I'm coming from. Uh, just as a reminder here, as we read these, when we see the seals uh, being broken, and we see um, the There's, there's, you know, there's the four riders of the apocalypse, and there's other judgments that come from the seals. When we see these things, um, we are not the the action itself that is the judgment or the action that the seals are showing are not actually taking place yet in this chapter. We are just they're being broken and opened, and we are being introduced to these judgments or these players that are going to take action on the earth um, in terms of the timeline of this vision that John has. He's not watching a live stream of these things happening in real time. He's seeing a vision of what was soon to come in his generation. Of course, they're passed to us, but again, chapter 6 is not showing us the live play of what's going on. It's introducing us to the judgments, the characters, that are going to go to the earth uh, in just a short time, as they ended up doing. Furthermore, uh, also say at the start here, as we look at each seal one by one, they are not trying to convey to us that, this, that these judgments or writers are coming in a strict chronological order. Um, so we don't need to read that into it. We don't need to think of this as a strict one-by-one one chronological things that come one after the other. Um, these are just the main judgment themes that will be coming down upon Jerusalem during this uh, great, great tribulation that happened in the first century. So, uh, also, I would just note here, um, as of course... I would make the case 
in the Gospels, in the, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have each of them uh, including their rendition, their recording of the Olivet Discourse that Jesus gives. And uh, I, of course, would say the Olivet Discourse is primarily Jesus prophesying about that judgment that would come um, on Jerusalem in the first century, on that generation uh, for rejecting Christ and being apostates. That's Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13. And you'll notice if you are familiar with the Olivet Discourse, Jesus talks about the tribulations that will come upon Jerusalem. And those same judgment themes, the same elements, are present here in Revelation. Why? Because they're talking about the same thing. Uh, there's, we're going to see there's famine, there's uh, uh, death, and uh, all kinds of things that we see that are the same things in those accounts and in here in Revelation. So um, it is interesting that in John's Gospel, he does not include a recording of the Olivet Discourse. Um, and some people say, well, one of the, one of the reasons for that um, is because that's what Revelation is, which the same John wrote as well. So uh, he, he does include it, just not in his gospel account, but in this, uh, this revelation of Jesus Christ. So with that, We will go ahead and I think that's all I want to say at the outset. We'll go ahead and begin looking at these uh, seal by seal. And actually one more introductory note. I want you to watch as we read this. Because most commentators, uh, modern day commentators at least, or, or many of them, popular ones, are going to say... This is about the end of the world, the end times, uh, the end of, you know, uh, this age, uh, or, you know, the end of, uh, the end of time. But please remember the context that we have been given in Revelation. John began his gospel. He said, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. John said that in the first century. Okay? He was shown things that must soon take place. Not thousands of years in the future, but soon to him and the people he was writing to. And he said, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So John's writing to his first century audience, telling them, Blessed are you if you hear and keep what, I, what I'm writing here. Why? He gives them motivation. Because, for, the time is near. Now, that is a motivation, the nearness of the time, that was a motivation John gave to his first century audience. Now, if the things he's writing about were to take place... 2,000 years and counting in the future, way, 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 way long after they were dead, 
that he was lying to them and giving them a false motivation. Uh, he shouldn't have said because the things are near, but just do it because I said, or because God says. But he gave them a time indicating motivation because these things are soon to take place. So listen and keep the words here because these things are near. That's the context of the book of Revelation. The things that John has seen and is showing them is, are things that will soon take place. Now, that's the context. As we have gone through Revelation, has that context changed? No, it has not. It has not changed. And I want you to watch as we go through this, chapter 6. And you look and you tell me where we see any change in, in time indicators. You won't find it, but I want you to look for it. And uh, you, since we've already been given a context, the burden proof is on the futurist to show us why this needs to be propelled into the future. Um, they can't do it. So uh, enough of that now. I will go ahead and now get into this. So that's important. Okay, that, I said that because it's important. That's, we have to understand the context of this book in order to get the proper application to our lives. If we don't interpret it properly and understand it properly, we can't properly then apply it to our lives. And don't we all want to do that? I think so. And uh, so, having said that, let us now look at seal number one, which we find in Revelation 6 verse 1 and 2 it says now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder come and I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer so here we have the first seal and with the breaking the opening of the first seal we see a rider on a white horse. Now, I'll just say right at the start, I take this to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the rider on the white horse. He has been given a bow, or he has a bow. He has a crown that's been given to him. And he comes out riding to conquer and conquering. So here's Christ the conqueror riding out. Now, the seven seals here, you'll notice, are judgments, okay? Uh, it may not be as obvious with the first seal here, but as you see the rest of them, they are judgments. And basically, the idea here is Christ is riding out, leading the charge. He is leading the judgment. He is the one making these judgments. You know, what is conquering but defeating enemies and judging them, destroying them? That's what he's doing here. Jesus Christ is here riding out to judge. And we'll see as we go what he's judging here. You may already know what I'm going to say about that. We see here that there's a crown given to him. So this is, of course, um, 
indicating that he is already king, he has already conquered. And now, as uh, that of course happened in his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection, and then ascension to the throne, um, he ascended to the throne to receive a kingdom, a people, and a nation, and a dominion, as we saw in the Son of Man ascension prophecy in Daniel 7. So he's already received his crown, he's already accomplished the victory uh, through his uh, gospel work crucifixion, death, resurrection, ascension. Now he's coming to judge. And he's uh, as he's doing this, this is the beginning of, of him coming to implement his victory. Uh, he, he's beginning to implement the victory that he already has. And he begins by judging uh, that generation of apostate uh, uh, Jewish uh, covenant breakers. Uh, that very generation, he said he would come to judge. That's what he's coming to do. That's how he starts the implementation of his victory, by uh, this judgment, okay, of the covenant breakers. Now, I think for many of you who I think may be listening to this, some of you maybe not, but... Okay, so it's crazy... um, Many disp- Okay, so I was going to say, for many of you, it, you may say, oh yeah, this is very much, even if you're not quite with me on the uh, first century understanding of this, you can easily look at verse 1 and 2 and see the white rider and say, oh yeah, that's, that's Jesus Christ. We agree, that's pretty clear. But you know what's really insane is, I mean, if you may have, be familiar with this, I don't know. There are many dispensationalists who take this white rider on the white horse to be the Antichrist. They take it to be the Antichrist. And um, because they see these judgments and this tribulation that's thrown down, they say, oh, this is the Antichrist coming to bring these judgments. Well, they're right, they're right that the white rider is bringing judgments, but they're wrong. That's the Antichrist. It's Jesus bringing judgment, okay? So they have a faulty image of Jesus. And, uh, um, but I will just, if you have come across that kind of dispensationalism that says this is the Antichrist, um, let me just give you a few bullet point pieces of argumentation against that, uh, if it's not obvious enough. First of all, there's no support for it. There's nothing in here indicating uh, that this is the Antichrist. Simply saying because he's bringing judgment or something, that doesn't... Why Why does that mean it's the Antichrist? Why can Jesus not also do that? And why does the Antichrist have power to do that? And let me just say this, too. First, this... The term Antichrist is not used in the book of Revelation. Okay? There is no use, no speaking of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. I don't, I mean, I don't know how that has grown to be the thing that it is. Everyone just assumes that Revelation is all about the Antichrist, but it's not in there one time. And, um, I mean, you have the beast that's a prominent theme in Revelation, but that's not the Antichrist. Um, there's no re- there's no exegetical basis for saying the beast is a, is 
the same thing as the Antichrist. I mean, sure, he's against Christ in that strict uh, meaning of Antichrist, but not capital Antichrist as people say it is. In fact, you know, the only places in the Bible that talk about the Antichrist are First and Second John. And John gives us the definition to what he means by Antichrist and it is those who deny that Jesus came in the flesh. That's what John says in First John. But the Antichrist is those who deny that Jesus came in the flesh. And he says also there are many Antichrists now. In the first century, John said that in First John. So it's not one singular end times figure, but it's a type of, of heresy. It's, it's, it's a theological position. And there were many of them already present in the first century who denied Jesus came in the flesh. Uh, it has nothing to do with anything in Revelation. So um, there's that first fact, fact that should be enough. But let me further uh, make some more points here. The imagery here that we've seen with the first seal and the, and the rider of the white horse, the imagery here that I'm saying pictures Christ is the same imagery that it more explicitly pictures Christ in other passages. Okay, so he's on a white horse. Well, guess where else we see a white horse? Well, it's in Revelation 19, and it's very clearly stated that's Jesus Christ. Also, the crown belongs to Christ. Okay, we see Jesus crowned in many other places, like Revelation 14 and also 19 again. And then the fact that it says he is conquering and going out to conquer. He came out conquering and to conquer. Which, how have we seen, I hope you've been, if you've listened to uh, many of the episodes up to this point, or if you're just familiar with the book of Revelation up to this point, this is not the first time we're introduced to the term conquering, okay? How has that term been used so far? The only way it's been used so far is to talk about Christians. It's something Christians are exhorted to do or called to do or something that they do. They, they conquer. They overcome. There's promises made to the one who conquers. So um, there's no reason, exegetical basis whatsoever, to somehow say this makes the Antichrist. That doesn't compute whatsoever. Furthermore, we have here Christ, or the the, white, the rider on the white horse, has a bow. Okay, he's got a as a bow as in bow and arrow. He's got a bow. Now, did you know that Habakkuk three pictures Christ carrying a bow? Okay, so we have that. You can go look that one up on your own. I got a lot that to get to in this episode, so I'm not going to stop and get everything. So look that one up. But there's the Lord with the bow. It also, this language here of Jesus, the white rider on a white horse, coming with a bow, a crown on his head, he came conquering and to conquer. It also, if you're familiar with the Psalter, should draw to mind Psalm 45. And I will read this one. Psalm 45, verse 3. If I can get to it here. I'm literally turning the pages as we speak. Psalm 45, verse 3 and 5, or 3 through 5. It says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. 
in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. So there we have a rider on a horse with a bow, shooting arrows, conquering, victorious. Same imagery. This is a psalm, of course, that Israel and Christians should be and definitely would have been in this time singing. And so reading about this rider on the white horse would have recalled that same imagery they had been singing about. And uh, boom, the connection was made. Now I do want to think for a moment, just a, just for a few moments more, about this bow that Christ is carrying. Because there's more, there's a little more there. And I want to ask the question, where did Christ get the bow? Where did Christ get the bow? Because it's also interesting, in Revelation 19, Jesus is also again on a white horse. And instead of a bow, he has a sword coming out of his mouth. Now, we'll, we'll get to it in a moment. I'll just say here, because it'll be a while before we get to chapter 19. But these are, those are different uh, instances, okay? Here in Revelation 6, he's riding with a bow in judgment upon Jerusalem, on apostate Israel. And in chapter 19, he's riding out to conquer, not bring judgment on Israel, but he's riding out to conquer the nations, the Gentiles, the nations. And the sword coming out of his mouth is the word of God. It's the gospel. And that's how he conquers the nations. So it's a different image, but very similar things going on there. But why the bow here then? Um, where did he get the bow? Why the bow? What's the significance of that? Well, for that, I will turn to David Chilton and just tell you what he says. Because I couldn't say it much better myself. And it's incredible. I won't take any credit for coming up with this because it's all from David Chilton. This is what David Chilton says. We should ask a rather obvious question at this point, so obvious that we are apt to miss it altogether. Where did Christ get the bow? The answer, as is usually the case, begins in Genesis. When God made the covenant with Noah, he declared that he was no longer at war with the earth because of the soothing aroma of the sacrifice, Genesis 8, 20 and 21. And as evidence of this, he unstrung his bow and hung it up in the cloud for all to see, Genesis 9, 13 through 17. Later, when Ezekiel was raptured up to the throne room at the top of the glory cloud, he saw the bow hanging above the throne, Ezekiel 1, 26-28. And it was still there when St. John ascended to heaven back in Revelation 4, 3. But when the Lamb stepped forward to receive the book from his Father's hand, he also, this is so good, listen, he also reached up and took down the bow to use it in judgment against the apostates of Israel. And then he quotes from Hebrews 10 here, For those who go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth are no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, 
but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the, of the living God. Hebrews 10, 26-31 David Chilton continues, It was thus necessary that the first writer should be seen carrying the bow of God's vengeance to signify the unleashing of the curse upon Israel's ground. For these apostates, the Noahic covenant is undone. Wow. So, I won't even add anything more to that. We'll just move on to seal number two in verse three and four. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Okay, so there is the second seal. And the second seal, we see another rider on a horse, and this time it's not a white horse, it's a bright red horse. And he is seen taking away peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he's got a great sword. So obviously the imagery there is that of judge, it's, it's a judgment of bloodshed. Okay, he's taking peace from the earth. And historically, if we think about this, during the time, you know, before the... Uh, Jewish and Roman wars uh, before Nero goes crazy there you can read it about it it was the uh, the time of the Pax Romana which was a time of peace that was maintained in the Roman Empire and during Jesus time it was a great time of peace um, and there so we see that this time of judgment and tribulation, that peace that was on the earth, because there was a relative peace on the earth earth during that time, is taken from the earth. So that now there's wars and people are killing one another. And here that is the judgment, judgment of bloodshed. Now, uh, let me say, before I get any farther, um, at some people who dispensationalist futurist readers are going to say um, the, the, you know, this is literally Jesus riding on the clouds in a white horse this is literally uh, a rider on a red horse you know literally horses riding in the clouds that are colored with riders on them bringing these judgments okay okay let me just say that that's not how we understand this this is uh, judgment, prophetic imagery, it's symbolism. So the idea is, so what is all this that, that John is telling us in Revelation? He is show, he's telling us, he's, he's written down a vision that he had. What he's written down, what he saw in a vision. So, yes, John in his vision literally saw a, a rider with a sword on a bright red horse. He literally saw that. But that what he saw 
was a vision. It was symbolic. It was a representation of judgments that were coming. You see, when we see visions of things, we see representation, symbolism. So no, it's not. So John literally saw this, but that's not literally what's happening when these judgments are given. These judgments, judgments just come in the ways they do. So um, if you've had literal images like that and you're thinking literally, um, yes, that's what John saw in his vision, but that's not how it was implemented when, it, when these judgments came. I hope that makes sense. Okay, so continuing on here. Um, this is an important thing that I want to bring out here. In verse 4, it says that the writer was permitted to take peace from the earth. Okay, So most of our translations probably say that he's taking peace from the earth. Um, but actually, another translation that is actually a better translation. Um, now, admittedly, I, I am not a Greek. Uh, I don't know Greek, and that's an area I, 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 need to, I need to learn it. But so I am basing this off of other people's knowledge of the Greek, trusted great Greek scholars. But yeah, better translation of the word here instead of earth is actually land. Okay. Um, and so while that's while we can see how both translations are valid, if we understand it more appropriately to be land, that he's going to take peace from the land, I think it helps us understand the context better. Um, in the sense that this was judgments coming on a specific land, not necessarily the entire globe, um, which helps us understand the 70 AD aspect of it. And uh, so um, this, this, these were judgments that were taking place on the land. What land? Well, the apostate land, uh, uh, Jerusalem, Israel. Okay. And those were part of the judgments and curses of the, of the Old Covenant that, you know, they'll inherit the land or the land will spew them out based upon their obedience to the covenant. And they were ultimately covenant breakers, and these are covenant judgments, covenant sanctions, the final uh, judgments uh, from their covenant breaking coming upon them. And part of that is judgments on the land, the land spewing them out. So, think that helps make more sense and if you do studies on the words um, you'll see that that is not just trying that's you know that's the better translation uh, land anyway uh, moving on seal number three verse five and six when he opened the third seal I heard the third living creature say come and I looked and behold a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil or the wine. So here we have the third seal, and now we have a black horse, and a rider on a black horse. And this... As we read there, he, he, there's language here about he's got a pair of scales in his hand, and uh, he's saying a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarters of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the other one. So there is a measuring out, a price given here to wheat and barley. What's going on here? 
Well, what's going on here, this is a judgment of famine, okay? It's a judgment of famine. Now let me make the case. Um, we see him measuring out with scales wheat, barley, that's, that's bread, okay, the food. And that is uh, showing us that um, there's a famine, so the money is just astronomical for bread. You know, they're spending all their money, all their wages just to get some bread to survive. Um, it's interesting that you, if you go look at it, Leviticus 26, 26, it associates people who eat bread based on its weight. So he's got scales, so he's weighing out the bread. And so Leviticus 26 talks about eating those who eat bread based upon its weight means they don't have enough bread to be satisfied. That's not much bread if you happen to weigh it out. So that's scarcity, that's famine. This is a judgment of famine. Furthermore, Lamentations 5.10 associates the color black with famine. So we've got the black horse, uh, and the Bible previously associates black with uh, the color black with famine. Lamentations 5.10 says, Our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. Okay, so we have those associations to help us understand what's going on here. Indeed, historically, uh, there was great famine during this time of tribulation on Jerusalem. You can read about it in Josephus. Um, and uh, that was something that happened. It was a terrible, terrible famine. So much, so much so that there were instances of mothers eating their infant babies, killing them and eating them. That was how bad it was that even the you know, that Jewish mothers were doing that. And the Roman soldiers, as barbarian as they were, were absolutely repulsed by it when they saw it. So this was an absolutely terrible famine that happened. This is the judgment of the black horse and his rider. Um, and I will just... I, let, me, let me read a little bit here. A little bit more on this. For you. Uh, again, David Chilton here, just so very good. I think this will help you a lot. This is what David Chilton says on this curse. He said, This curse thus means a shortage of the necessary staples, a measure of wheat rising to more than 1,000% of its former price, consuming an entire day's wages, so that a man's entire labor is spent in obtaining food. This is God's curse on men whenever they rebel. The land itself spews them out. The curse devours productivity in every area, and the ungodly culture perishes through starvation, disease, and depression. This is how God controls the wicked. They must spend so much time just surviving that they are unable to exercise ungodly dominion over the earth. In the long run, this is the history of every culture that departs from God's word. Wow, that's just incredibly good. Uh, furthermore, he goes on and he says that he quotes Josephus, the Jewish Roman historian during this time, who recorded all these events of the Jewish Roman wars. And Josephus describes the frantic search for food uh, during the final siege. 
This is what he said. First century historian, who I was an eyewitness to these things. This is what he said. As the famine grew worse, the frenzy of the insurgents kept pace with it. And every day, both these horrors burned more fiercely. For, since nowhere was grain to be seen, men would break into houses. And if they found some, they mistreated the occupants for having denied their possession of it. If they found none, they tortured them as if they concealed it more carefully. Proof, whether they had food or not, was provided by the physical appearance of the wretches. Those still in good condition were deemed to be well provided with food, while those who were already wasting away were passed over, for it seemed pointless to kill persons who would soon die of starvation. Many secretly bartered their possessions for a single measure of wheat if they happened to be rich, barley if they were poor. Then they shut themselves up in the darkest corners of their houses in the extremity of hunger. Some even ate their grain underground, while others baked it guided by necessity and fear. Nowhere was the table laid, the food was snatched, half-cooked from the fire, and torn into pieces. So that's in Josephus's uh, work, The Jewish War. So this was the judgment of famine. But uh, one thing you'll notice, amidst the judgment of famine, the writer says, do not touch the oil and the wine. So that's very interesting. While there's this great famine on bread and food in general, it did not affect the oil and the wine. Now, of course, I'll take that as well as I take the fam- famine to be something that happened, uh, literally. So I'll take it to be the oil and wine literally was not affected. But I think it's also a symbolic representation, very likely representing the fact of God's protection of the godly during this time. Okay, so while it's this great, terrible time of affliction and tribulation and famine, yet God, in his providence and care, will protect the godly. And uh, I believe that's what is being talked about here. And let me just, one more thing here uh, about this point from David Chilton. He, he says this, In all likelihood, another dimension of this expression's import is that God's messengers of destruction are kept from harming the righteous. Scripture often speaks of God's blessing upon the righteous in terms of oil and wine. See Psalm 40, 104, 15. And of course, oil and wine are used in the rites of the church. James 5, 14-15 and 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. This would then parallel those other passages in which the godly are protected from destruction. So there's the third rider, Black Horse, the judgment of famine. Yet amidst this famine, God preserves his people. All right, moving on to seal number four, verse seven through eight. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and the wild beasts of the earth. Okay, so here we have the next uh, horseman here, the fourth horseman, and it's the judgment of Death. So now Death is coming as a result of all these things sword, 
famine, pestilence, wild beasts. And it does say that it's a pale horse. But what's interesting is the Greek there, the word is actually chloros, which uh, means green. (laughs) So don't know why they put pale horse when the word is actually green horse. Uh, Maybe it could be indicating a green tint to the paleness. Uh, Whatever the case, uh, there's that piece of information for you. But anyways, this is obviously the judgment of death. Now people are dying, okay? So uh, dying from all these things. And of course, this happens over a fourth of the earth at this point in time. Uh, Or again, again, the translation should be land, okay, a fourth of the land. So uh, that's what's going on here judgment of death uh, resulting from all these things okay so there's that moving on now that was quick and easy seal number five verse nine through eleven when he opened the fifth seal i saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of god and for the witness they had borne they cried out with a loud voice O sovereign lord holy and true how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. All right, so there's the fifth seal. And you'll notice here there is not a horseman with this fifth seal. That's because there are only four horsemen. Okay, there are seven seals, but four of them are describing horsemen. Uh, So the other three seals are judgments that come down in different ways. And that's what we see here with this one. Judgment's coming down, not in the form of a horseman, but in the form of the prayers of the saints. And let's get into that. So we have here what is seen to be uh, martyrs who are under the altar, uh, the souls of, the, of, the, of those who've been slain for the word of God and their witness they had borne, under the altar, and they're crying out, asking God, uh, how long until you judge and avenge our blood for the, of those who dwell on earth? So, um, again, I take this to be uh, these martyrs here, the souls of these martyrs, are not, I do not believe this is talking about all the martyrs of all history. I believe this is the first century martyrs that were killed in Jerusalem during this time of tribulation, during the time of persecution. Um, And this is very, very credible of an interpretation because Jerusalem had a bad reputation of being just brutal murderers of Christians and its prophets throughout its history. And uh, again here, look at what they say. They are asking God, they're saying, avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth. Okay, again, that should, could be translated land, okay? But again, they're, whatever, earth or land, whatever, they're saying, avenge our blood of those who dwell on earth. So they're saying, They've been they've been martyred, they've been slain, and the people who slew them are still on the earth. They're still alive on the earth. So that's huge. That's huge. So that that that's indicating to us these are first century Christians who have just been slain in that generation, that time of persecution, and people who killed them are on the earth. They're they're still they're still there. Why have they not been judged and avenged? When God and when Jesus promised, those first century Christians knew that Jesus promised promised these judgments on uh, apostate Israel, and so they're saying, "How long until you do this, Lord? You said their generation, you know." 
So uh, again, I hope you see that. That's so huge. Um, Again, the fact that they're calling for judgment for those on the land indicates that those who killed them are still on the land, on the earth, uh, making them specifically first century pre-70 AD martyrs uh, not being representative here of all Christians for all time. Uh, so there's that. Now, another, another question here. Why are they under the altar? That's an interesting spot for them to be. Why under the altar? Well, we get some Old Testament imagery here. Again, as I've said, Old, Test- Old Testament is so important to understanding Revelation. Um, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, the priests, uh, when they sacrificed the, the, the sacrifice, um, bulls, goats, whatever it was, sheep, uh, they poured the blood of the sacrifice at the bottom of the altar. They would pour out on the bottom of the altar. And specifically mentioned, that detail is mentioned in Leviticus. It's poured on the, the bottom of the altar. So here we have those who are slain. Their blood was slain, spilled and slain, and they're under the altar. Um, and it also kind of implies there, if they're under the altar, well, who made the sacrifices in the Old Testament system? Israel, Israel's priests. So this is indicating the priests of Israel slew them, or, or you know, Israel's leaders, the apostate people, are the ones who martyred them. And again, that kind of narrows in our scope of understanding and context to uh, first century uh, Jewish persecution of Christians and uh, the fact that this is the seven seals, judgments here are judgments on Jews uh, or on apostate Israel specifically. Not the whole earth, uh, not Gentiles and nations, but on Jerusalem uh, here in chapter 6. We'll get to the rest of the nation or the rest of the nations later on in Revelation. Uh, and again, what we see here, they're calling out for God's vengeance on their killers. They're, that's what they're doing. They're saying, Lord, how long till you avenge our blood? Um, they're asking God, when are you going to kill these people? When are you going to judge them? Um, that's not a prayer we uh, think about praying too much, is it? I mean, we haven't been killed for not praying that, but we don't think about praying that type of prayer upon our enemies. Well, that's, that's imprecatory prayer right there. Uh, and that is, should be, ought to be, a vital piece of the prayer life of the Christian, done appropriately. And again, for this, I want to read a little bit from David Chilton. Um, if you are part of my church listening to this, uh, you'll recall not too long ago I preached on Psalm 5, which has imprecatory elements in it. And so I talked a little, little bit about that. Um, so let's see. Let me read this bit from David Chilton. Talking about here their, their cry for vengeance. This is what he says. That this blunt cry for vengeance strikes us as strange just shows how far our pietistic age has degenerated from the biblical worldview. If our churches were more acquainted with the foundational hymn book of the church, the Psalms, instead of the sugary, syrupy, sweetness and light choruses that, that characterize modern evangelical hymnals, we would understand this much easier. But we have fallen under a pagan illusion that, is somehow that it is somehow unchristian to pray for God's wrath to be poured out upon the enemies and persecutors of the church. Yet that is what we see God's people doing with God's approval in both testaments of the Holy Scriptures. 
It is, in fact, a characteristic of the godly man that he despises the reprobate, Psalm 15.4. The spirit expressed in the imprecatory prayers of Scripture is a necessary aspect of the Christian's attitude. Much of the impotence, oh, this is so huge, listen to this. Much of the impotence of the churches today is direct, directly attributable to the fact that they have become emasculated and effeminate. Such churches, unable even to confront evil, much less overcome it, will eventually be captured and dominated by their enemies. And David Chilton wrote this in the 1980s. Okay? And he, he died. He died in the 90s, I believe, at a fairly young age. I believe in his 40s or 50s. Imagine if he was saying in the 80s, oh, man, we've, we've... The cultural decline has just happened at such a rapid pace since then. Anyway, let's move on here. I know I'm going a long time here. Getting close, getting close. Lots of good stuff. We'll go ahead and move on here to seal number six, our last few verses here, verse 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich and powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand man yeah big time stuff here here we see in the sixth seal imagery of a collapsing solar system stars are falling the moon is turning to blood you know the sun is going black there's earthquakes mountains are being rolled up the sky is being rolled up all kinds of things going on people begging the mountains to fall on them because they can't bear to see the coming of the lamb the day of his wrath. What are we seeing here? This is huge. We're seeing imagery of a collapsing solar system. Now, believe it or not, I hope you, if you know your Bibles, you'll know this is not the first time the Bible's talked like this, but this collapsing solar system imagery is a actually a common piece of symbolism, a common uh, theme of symbolism in Scripture. And many places, actually, it's used. And you'll notice that when it is used throughout Scripture, it's used to describe the fall of a nation-state. City-state, nation-state. Okay, so again, as I've already set out before, this is not literal stars falling. You know, that's... I don't even know how you think that would be possible because as soon as the sun moves a hair closer to us we're fried before it even gets to the earth and the earth is like way 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 smaller than all the stars so clearly this is symbolism sun going black moon's blood so all this stuff um what's the symbolism here let me let me turn real quick and lay this out for you i think uh doug wilson puts this uh, very good in his book when the man comes around Here's what Doug Wilson says. First, there's a great earthquake, which in Scripture is a regular way to indicate a divine visitation. 
for this. See Exodus 19, 18, Isaiah 2, 19, or Haggai 2, 6. The language that follows is decreation language, language of destruction. This collapsing solar system imagery is, a, is common in scripture and always refers to the annihilation of a nation or city-state. Isaiah, and he's going to list off here, examples. Here it is. Isaiah speaks this way of Babylon, Isaiah 13, 1-10. Later, Isaiah speaks, this, uh, speaks of the destruction of Edom in the same way, Isaiah 34, 4. Ezekiel speaks of Egypt's fall with these terms, Ezekiel 32, 7-8. Joel prophesies the end of Israel in the first century with this language in Joel 2, 20-32, which is also quoted in Acts 2 by Peter in his sermon, talking about his last days there that they're in. Very interesting. Uh, keep going here from Doug Wilson. Amos does the same thing concerning the northern kingdom of Israel, Amos 8, 9. And to top it off, the Lord Jesus quotes the passages from Isaiah in order to answer the questions about what was going to happen in Jerusalem. That's in Matthew 24, 29, and 34. In addition... John here uses Isaiah's picture of stars falling like figs and of the heavens being rolled up like a scroll, Isaiah 34, 4. And Christ himself predicted that refugees from the, fight, from the fighting in Jerusalem would in fact seek refuge in caves and under rocks, Luke 23, 22-31. And he was drawing on Hosea 10, 8, Isaiah 2, 10, 19, and 21 when he did this. Incidentally, Josephus tells us that this is exactly what happened. Okay. So, again, we have to understand Revelation in terms of the imagery the Bible already lays out for us. This is not a literal stars falling. This is decreation, judgment language upon the end of a nation state, that being Israel, Jerusalem. Again, our contextual focus is on these are things happening to Israel on the land, not yet dealing with the nations in the book of Revelation. So, I know I'm, I'm running out of time here, but let me say some of the things very quickly. The stars falling. There's also more imagery to that. In Genesis, it tells us that the, that the stars are set out to map out the seasons and time. So, in one sense, stars are clocks. They're heavenly clocks. They tell us times and seasons. This is cool. Therefore, their falling represents the fact that Israel's time has run out. The Old Covenant era is officially over. This is de-creation language, time-ending language for Israel. God's old creation, Israel is done. It is time for the kingdom to be transferred to the church, God's new creation. Earthquake. There's, so there's an earthquake, and so there's uh, the shaking of the heavens. Um, I can't, I don't have time to read it, but go read Hebrews 12, where it talks about a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The whole verse is around there. The same language is used. God shakes the things that can be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken remains, meaning the kingdom of God. And he's talking about, I think, directly in context, the shaking that he's about to do of the heavens, uh, that it's going to shake down Jerusalem and old covenant uh, institutions so that the new covenant, that which cannot be shaken, the kingdom of God, will remain. Finally, last thing I want to read here as we are rapidly closing up here in terms of the people calling for mountains and rock to fall on them. This is again from David Shilton. He says, This passage is not speaking of the end of the world, but of the end of Israel in AD 70. The origin of the symbolism used here is in the prophecy of Hosea against Israel. This is from Hosea. Ephraim will be seized with shame, and Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. Samaria will be cut off with her king like a stick on the surface of the water. 
Also the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars, and they will say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. That's Hosea 10, 6-8. So again, boom, that is what happened. And in fact, Jesus quotes that passage to say to the people in Luke 23, Weep for yourselves and your children, because the days are coming when they're going to beg the mountains and hills to fall on them. All right, guys, I'm out of time. That's it. Thanks for listening. I hope it's helpful. Bye.